it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 215. So there's a lot of numbers, Zeke. That is a lot of numbers. That is a lot of numbers. Should I count from 1 to 215 to double check? What, We're doing the right are number. We're padding for time, are we? One, <laughs> two. No, yeah, it is indeed a lot of numbers, Jake. It's just going to fill in the time. Because, because we have such a strict time on this podcast. I here. know. Every episode has to come in at one hour, 12 minutes, and four seconds. Yeah. Much we failed like almost every time. Yeah, much like Inception that um, mm. had a very specific time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, if, if we were doing Inception... We'd probably screw it up. Yeah, probably. Because we just... The, the time is... Like, oh, we Probably uh, run late on one of the layers I know, of it's dreams. like, we had to talk about the BAFTAs this week. I added another 30 minutes onto the <laughs> into the dream sequence. <laughs> How are you, Jake? <laughs> I'm good. It feels like it's been a long time since we did Inception, but... It does, actually. Alas. Which is weird, because the week goes really quick. Mm. And then I'm like, oh, I'm back here. It's Monday again. Yeah. Well, I, I think... But then you think about individual events that happen in the last seven days and you're like oh wow that feels like ages ago yeah this is very true yeah very true even just like a meeting I had last Thursday I was like god was that Thursday hey well you know you did Inception before that meeting you're at work (laughs) I'm at school when you're on the inside time flies and you just lose track of it much like in the film of the Ah. week Shawshank Redemption Jake do you have any cool fun trivia facts from the film of the week I do I do about the Shawshank Redemption (laughs) I get it but, his name's Red. Well, he doesn't really redeem anything in the film. No, Small. but but uh, he, he's uh, shut up. Okay, <laughs> just just stop it. What's your fact? <laughs> <laughs> well, my facts to do with, of course, Frank Darabont, who we're doing a director's corner of yes. this week. Very exciting, and I'm I'm very happy because I caught a lot of his work in this past week. That's really so good. I'm going to get into some of the the specifics of those works, including the 1983 film The Woman in the Room, which was his first, not only his first really directorial effort of, of any kind, feature or short, is a 30-minute short, but it's also his first run-in with adapting a Stephen mm. King work, a small novella or short story, I believe. And, I mean, in fact, the Shawshank Redemption is a novella. It's actually really short. It's like 90 pages. I, re- I should have read it last night <laughs> to inform the podcast, but the original novella titled Rita Haywood and the Shawshank Redemption, he purchased for $5,000 which Stephen King himself didn't even cash that check. He framed it, sent it back to Frank, and said, in case you ever need bail money, here you go. <laughs> I mean, hey, this film, it did wonders for many a career. It did. So uh, it did. five grand in the in the grand scheme of things. Doesn't seem too bad. I get it. All things considered. I get it. Although adjusted for inflation. So well, it still would only still. be like 30,000, maybe oh. six, seven times the amount. Be a decent amount of cash. What, it'd be like 50 grand? It would be yeah, like nothing. That's nothing. For a book. <laughs> to the right. For the rights to... How much do you reckon... the greatest Harry, film of all JK, time, well, J.K. Rowling, how much do you sell her rights to her book for? I don't know, <laughs> a actually. A cancelled amount. Um, I don't know. Two bucks. Not one dollar. The well, dollar babies that, that King himself gives out. Pun, we'll get into pun, those later. Zeke, what's your fun fact? Well, pun intended with you, Jake, when you pun went intended. the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> um, believe it or not... I'm funny. Morgan Freeman wasn't the first person considered for this role. No. Um, no, there is a collection. Obviously, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Paul Newman, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford, and Robert Duvall. I'll give you three guesses what the difference between all of those actors and Morgan Freeman is. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have eyes, Zeke. I have eyes. Yes, we all I do. And of them. course, obviously, in the book, Red is a middle-aged white Irishman. Mm. Obviously, Morgan Freeman is not white nor Irish. Um, and this is quite interesting because obviously Frank Darabont's the one, the director yes. that we're going to be talking about, is the one that had Morgan Freeman in, in mind for the role because of his authoritative presence, demeanor, and of course, deep voice. Mm. Now, it's quite interesting because obviously in the film, Red makes that joke about being Irish. And yeah. it's kind of a throwaway comment. I mean, it's definitely requires Andy's inquiry. But um, let's, I'll throw it to you. Did mm. any of those names that I listed, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Paul Newman, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford, or Robert Duvall, Imagine if they were it, replacing Morgan Freeman in this film. It's interesting because my main takeaway, a lot of those names you listed, very very stoic, you know, Western caricatures in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. And there's definitely a Western analogue to be made about this film, but not from Red's perspective. It's the guy who sort of comes into this strange land with a mysterious background and leaves an impact, whether it's, you know, library books or a, a newfound sense of hope in some of the other prisoners mm. and then you know bounces that's a very western kind of story and a very western kind of character so i could see them all playing andy dufresne kind of i think there's subtleties you know to the the performance we actually got from tim robbins that that escalate everything about this film and that character but that's where my mind goes i know tom cruise also was in mind for the Andy role, particularly when Rob Reiner was looking to make this film. Now, that uh, would be a very interesting version. It would be a completely different film, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, in all things considered, it's it's very hard to obviously replace Morgan Freeman in this film. Mm. It's such an iconic voice. Like, His voice reasons, literally carries the film. Dar Darabont, <laughs> actually. And most of them, I couldn't see... I could see Robert Redford in a role like this. And ironically, mm. um, I'm looking through the names and... You know, we we have talked a bit, a bit about Burt Reynolds, and Burt Reynolds goes on to do The Longest Yard with Adam yeah. Sandler about 10 years after this film comes out. So, But the rest of those names, I just couldn't see, like you said, carrying the film's narration, which is such a... You know, we'll talk about it in the second half of the show, but it's such a... It really is the spine of this film. Mm. I don't think a film... There aren't many good films out there that are so... Uh, complemented by their narration yeah. um, or, or driven by their narration, their storybook narration. A lot of the times, it, we, you know, it's actually something they actively tell us to avoid is narration and voiceover because it's a it's It's, lazy a, tra it's story. a trap. You know, you a can fall into over-expository and, and just the performance of it all. And, you know... It's a tricky, yeah. A few weeks ago, we are talking about Titanic and obviously Rose is narrating that, but it's very minimalistic. It's, it's honestly mm. segue narration. Yeah. She's not there, like, commenting in the same way that Freeman's so intrinsically involved. So, um, yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah. Couldn't imagine any of those other names, retrospectively. So, we'll talk about the directorial decision behind that one. Absolutely. But, Zeke, this film is on the poster behind you. 1,100 films you must watch before you die. You mean the film up until, like, what, five or six years ago that was the number one film on IMDb? <laughs> it still is. Is it still the number it's one? It's tied with The Godfather, but still the number one on IMDb. I'm going to say yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And it absolutely <laughs> deserves it. It's it's a bona fide classic. Um, yeah, there's not much more to say about that. This film is a must-watch for any aspiring filmmaker. Yeah. Anyway, there's no question about it. Comes in one of the best 
sort of periods of time, that early mid nineties. Yeah, you know, I was reading more free trivia for everyone. This film came out on the same day as Pulp Fiction. That's wild. And then you, and then it lost the Oscar to Forrest Gump. Like, nineteen ninety four was a year. <laughs> that was yeah. And then a you, go a year, year you go a year film. later. You've got Toy Story, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah. The nineties. The nineties was just immaculate it's gonna be it's funny because obviously it's coined what the golden ages of the 40s and the 70s there's a fair argument to throw the 90s in there there's definitely a golden age of film in the 90s and that that's kind of like you got a bit of your miramax thing. i'd say your early mid 90s is yeah your peak your well i think the 90s. thing the thing when you look at film history you kind of just notice it's just a giant cycle of golden era and then hollywood studio system that's just constantly reinvented every 20 30 years um, we're absolutely one million percent in a new Hollywood studio system now, which is the way they churn out Marvel films every five seconds, and and that's becoming kind of the norm for any film that costs more than ten dollars to make. Certified rotten uh, Marvel film. Oh, um, Ant Man. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh God, I just uh, you know what's good though about I don't want to get into too much of a tangent. It was really good about this whole, especially with the CGI crisis and everything. Overworked, underpaid aspect of that whole thing is Marvel films are now getting such a bad rap in particularly for their visuals that it all of a sudden doesn't mean anything to have worked on a Marvel film which means there won't be so much pressure on VFX studios to get gigs with them. Yep. Marvel famously underpay all of their CGI studios by 20% less than other studios That's crazy. That's like what's the point anymore? People rag on them, they're getting rotten tomato scores now, they're just on the decline Yep. And they don't pay nearly as well as any other studio. What what's the point anymore? So I hope I hope this is a good thing for the CGI studios out there. But Jake, you mm. said you'd watched a lot of Frank Darabont. I did. So what have you caught in the last week? So I'll talk a little bit about this nineteen eighty three short film, The Woman in the Room. It's thirty minutes. You can find like a VHS recording of it on YouTube. So the quality's not very good. <laughs> it's it's barely watchable to be honest. But nevertheless, you still get a good sense of Darabont's sort of um you know, directorial style. You can see it. You can see it in there how this film leads to Shawshank in the same way that like, you can watch The Mist and be like, oh, I see how this turned into Walking Dead, which is another film that I watched recently. We're finally going to talk about The Mist together, Zeke. This is going to be interesting. But before I get onto that... So it's The Woman in... Uh, the Woman in the Room. In the Room. So this is actually one of the pioneer films from the Dollar Baby adaptations for Stephen Spielberg. Okay. Oh, Stephen Spielberg, my gosh, Stephen King... I'm sure you've heard of this whole thing where Stephen King gives out a bunch of his stuff for a dollar. Or you can buy... Um, not buy, but like be given the rights for one dollar to adapt one of his short films or um, short stories. Novellas, if you will. Now, the list is He's not such a bro. great. Sorry? He's such a bro. He is. It's great. I actually love that. I think it's a shame. It seems a little too student film specific. So I feel like if I were to, for example, apply for this, I might get the boop just because I'm not, like, you know, in the school system anymore. I don't study at Murdoch, for example, potentially. But and obviously you're not allowed to profit from it. But this is one of the pioneering films to do that. And as you can see, sure, Frank Darabont didn't make a lot of money from doing The Woman in the Room, a 30-minute short film. But it did lead him to direct The Shawshank Redemption. So, <laughs> mm. so like, in terms of what it can do for your career and your relationship with someone as esteemed as Stephen King, it can do wonders. But that being said, it like I said, you can see his directorial star in here, but uh, there wasn't a lot to interpret. It is just a giant 
you know, series of conversations between two people. It's very unflashy. It's in particular about a, a son who's caring for his dying mother. And I did find it thematically quite interesting because it, it much like Shawshank does in terms of it, it, it goes against societal expectation or norm and understanding of what you think is taboo and not taboo. Mm. And much like Shawshank does that with the idea of, of prison can be more of a home to people than, you know, the outside, the walls, or the way it kind of treads with that narrative, this film does the same in terms of death being a solution. You know, we live through life and we, we go through life fighting illnesses and whatnot with this just inherent instinct of survival. And this film really goes against that and, and suggests, like, maybe you are better off just dying sometimes. Maybe that's better off for a lot of people. Most people are just waiting for death. Maybe they, they're just waiting for death because they're either in pain or they don't have purpose. And there's a great scene between him and a prisoner, for example, talking about how I think he was in the war and one of his friends got injured and it got to the point where he just killed him because it's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to stop you from, from suffering. And like we've seen that explore before, but this very much was exclusively about this idea. I thought it was really interesting that it did that. Uh, but in terms of the filmmaking, like I said, with the exception of a really cool nightmare sequence in the hallways of a, of a hospital, um, yeah. It's so interesting. Mm. And, and as you've been talking about, I'm just looking at this dollar baby program. It's so yeah. interesting to have that. What an OG. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm low-key tempted. I don't know how far I would take this idea, Zeke, but I would love to read all the ones that are available through this plan and see part which one want, I'm yeah, part of you'd give a go yeah, yeah which one intrigues me the most yeah. it the short gets a list uh, it, sorry the list gets shorter over time because people actually do buy the proper rights to these stories and then at that point it's off the table um, but until that happens they're all they're all available for a dollar you just can't yeah. profit off them and you have to I know I know Zeke I know this sucks but you just have to do it you have to thank him in the credits can you believe it? I know. You have to do it. It's, it's a shame. But That's cool. The other That's one I watched was The Mists. Oh. So you've seen this. Yes. Uh, I think I, this was I, in the, the OG, the inaugural 365 challenge. Oh, cool. Um, And you knew going in, like, you were sort of looking at it from the perspective of he did Walking Dead. This sort of led into Walking and Dead. This was, yeah. This was the, the last project before Walking Dead started. Mm. And you can tell because yes, there's cast members that are in the first seasons of Walking Dead. Yeah, I mean, um, just to name a few, uh, Laurie Holden, Melissa McBride, and, of course, Jeffrey D. Munn, who's in pretty much everything that Frank Darabont has made. He's the the um, defense lawyer or the criminal... What's... The prosecutor. He's like the prosecutor in the start of Shawshank. The one who reads out, like, all the crimes he did, the fact that he shot him eight times, not six. That whole monologue. So he he's <laughs> he is a staple in all of... Frank Darabont's films, but you're right. A lot of them did go on to do Walking Dead. Very direct comparison there. Um, in, just in terms of the the film being about this outside threat, but it's about like the reaction to it, the sort of mm. communal different personalities. It's actually a little M Night esque. This is shocking. Honestly, he didn't direct this film. Yeah, there there are big key sort of giveaways. There's a weird. There's that Eastern European cinema vibe with the. Um, like the crash zooms and the, the, the yeah the crash zooms on the, ones, the varifocal but... lens zooms yep. and pulls, um, which really sort of kind of give it that more European feel, mm. which is not very Shyamalan, which is his especially modern day Shyamalan's very sure. His camera work in old is pretty whack though. It's a bit out there. 
Um, but everything, to your everything. Have you see Batista, Oscar <laughs> Buzz for Batista. Um, <laughs> oh, I haven't seen that one yet. The new knock, knock, at, knock, knock at the at cabin, the door, knock at the cabin, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, it's a great film. It has the most downer ending of downer endings. Oh, Zeke, I got to talk to you about this ending. We won't spoil it here. We won't. <laughs> but holy most... crap, the whole! I swear to God, I'm watching this film and I'm appreciating his his yeah. work and comparing it to Shawshank and Green Moms. Like, well, it's not. It's not either of those films. It, it works for what it is. It, it, it kind of feels like an intentionally cheesy B-horror slasher at times. Yeah, I, I think that it, it's kind of in that tier of Stephen, Stephen King where it's like... probably on the It probably shares the same company, I reckon, of Stephen King's It. Sure. Um, where it's it definitely has kind of hokey horror moments to yeah. it. But I think at its core, it does have a really cool... It has that, honestly, that classic literature microcosm. Mm. Um, deconstruction, you know. We all read Of Mice and Men. They're still reading Of Mice and Men in schools. <laughs> and it's like, obviously, this, this shopping mall sort of is a microcosm of that small town society. And yep. we, we, we see different... We see ostracization at the hands of different religions, religious mm. takeovers, persecutions, um, power dynamics shift within this supermarket. I didn't which... think it was suspicious how long the, uh, the religious nut job survived <laughs> yeah it was suspicious how long she i was like oh I mean, no it, it, you say that but she's it's like even when killed. the titanic's going down there's still people there praying as the thing is going like vertical yeah no but i mean <laughs> th- this film does a great job you're right showcasing all that where it's like there's a religious response to it the scientific response to it the spiritual response to it and it's like all of those keep getting sort of ticked off is not to do with the horror a lot that of everyone goes mad and they go crazy. A, a lot of those philosophical and theological uh, responses to a unforeseen world event like mm. aliens invading are ideas he definitely transfers over into yeah. his first two seasons of Walking Dead. Mm. Like, massive correlations Well, even there. just, like, the, the morality of the of um, Maggie's family in season two. Yeah. Of just, oh, like, they want to keep a lot of these undead creatures alive. Yeah, and, you know... It's very interesting. Yeah. I think it's a quite... A, Look, it, it has moments, like I said, it has moments of hokiness. Um, it has, like I said, the biggest downer ending. Well, it that's has, what I was going to say. Like the most for, last... For all like, the sort of... This is six years before Last of Us. <laughs> for all, for all the, the hokiness and sort of... It felt like an ode to like the old B-horror films. I mean, I mean, I didn't realise this. Darabon, he was a writer for films like Nightmare on Elm Street and, and The Fly, The Blob. I didn't realise that. I didn't realise how rooted he was in horror, especially like that kind of mm. B-schlock slasher horror but that's all offset by the ending like the ending so, is one of the all-time great endings of any piece of fiction i've ever seen i'm not great. exaggerating when i say that it's legitimately good the it, it's brilliant and it, i think it you know and we'll have to do it one day on the show maybe it'll get into our uh, countdown through the decades retrospective mm. um and have the opportunity but it is it, honestly the last it's so I, i've i remember going into it people were like well the ending almost makes it feel like it's a completely different film from what you're watching because it's like tonally yeah. it, it does shift and then it also has such a substance filled ending yeah that sometimes that little hokiness like you said like the the christian antagonist uprising and how long that they mm. stay alive despite at times they almost have that um kathy bates from misery level like <laughs> insanity to them <laughs> And it's like, you know, you can kind of see it. Clearly, Stephen King has something against religious people because <laughs> his well, depictions of religion are always very extreme. Well, 
in, um, in the mist, sure. I mean, in Shawshank, in particular, Green Mile, the the religion in the, especially Green Mile, is essential to the understanding of that yeah. story. I definitely don't think it's portrayed as as like a no. It's definitely no, no. Yeah. So I guess it, there's a fine balance there between which type of genre he's focusing mm. on, but um, yeah, it's a great uh, yeah. It's a sucker punch. <laughs> oh no, it's a fantastic ending. I loved it. Um, no, I I. I think the ending, not not that it saved it, in, in I was enjoying my time with it, but it's in terms of his overarching career, this is sort of like the one. If you break his career into two sections, which is his character drama um, adaptations of Stephen King, so you look at you know the Woman in the Room, mm. Shawshank, Green Mile, those kinds of films, and then you got the horror side of it, where he did you know he wrote Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three and. And obviously went on to do The Mist, and his uh, Buried Alive was a film he made in 1990. That was technically his debut. I didn't catch that. That is on YouTube as well. That's pretty easy to find. But The Mist is the the cross of those two, the horror and the Stephen King element of it. I think The Mist, for me, I remember walking away from it, and it's like it's saying here it's listed a budget of $18 million and clearly... That that plays a big role, but you know if you're it must have made a lot of money. I'm guessing. I think it it broke. Yeah, it, it didn't make like huge. It would have made more than fifteen it though. Would have made more than yeah. Would have made more than eighteen. Um, but I think for me, I think the biggest take a fifty-seven point three. I just mm. checked it. Um, Thomas Jane as the lead. Um, you know I yeah. think he's a very. To be honest, I think he's a very weak lead. Um, and it's one of those things, watching the film, I'm like, I feel like this film could have been really elevated if we had had, honestly, a, a more prominent actor in that front row. I think we would right. have heard a lot more about The Mist if it had had, you know, and we're about to talk about a very strong ensemble film, but it's yep. supported by very two very good pillars, yep. which basically solidified them both as major league actors mm. and I, I know Robbins hasn't done nearly as much as Freeman has retrospectively but Robbins following Shawshank had a momentous rise mm. like he did Wind River and he did all these films and he did um The Player like he had a good run in the 90s yeah um and you know it's don't forget Green Lantern Zeke well I was gonna say we <laughs> But it very much like that, you know. It's uh, but it took how long for Brendan Fraser to kind of come back in? So it's like it's not yeah. never over. But um, I just think, yeah, I, for me, his the ensemble of the mist is quite strong. But it could have really, I think it would have really benefited from a not even a like a top tier of the time. Sure, like, but like a stronger like, lead performance. Oh seven. I mean, imagine if you got someone. I don't know. Oh seven. You could easily have gotten. Who's around at that time? Toby Maguire. Like, these people that are kind of, like, not having a lot on their plate post-2007, because it's what, that's post-Spider-Man 3, or... I'm trying to think... Yeah, well, a, they probably would have shot... Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti would have been oh, really cool. Yeah, like, yeah. these ones that are, like, really good actors... Someone, he doesn't those. blend into the background as much. Yeah. Because I think, I think he kind of does in the mist. And I didn't think of it as a negative, because like, it feels like a bit of an ensemble. We're exploring all these different characters and their responses. But, but if you think of how powerful... I am interested in that alternative if universe. If you think about how powerful... God, I'm trying to remember his name. Who's Rick Grimes again? What's his... Oh, Andrew Lincoln. Andrew Lincoln. 
you know, you think of how much Andrew Lincoln, like, he has some very strong and good moments when mm. Laurie dies in that third season, despite it being sure. memed a bit. It, it was memed a bit. It was Men crying bit. gets memed no matter who it is. Yeah. Even Pedro Pascal's getting memed, damn it. For having a panic attack in a TV show. Should have got Pedro back then. He wasn't, he was an unknown. He was, he was a time bomb waiting to happen. I feel like that won't be the last version of The Mist we'll ever see. Because I think it's a very good I've, film. I would concept. actually like to see another adaption of it. I think there have been a couple. But I would love to see one that... Yeah. I'm just just play more money with it a bit more. It. Yeah, there's a bit more money behind it. Like, I know it's still a, a sort of a bottle film in itself. Because yeah. it's obviously confined to one space. So you don't actually need that much money behind it. Yeah. But I'm talking like... Well, go all out with the creature designs and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, like the thing. The, the film references the thing. It's like the first poster you see in his in his room when he's he's painting the posters. But it's like even with like yeah. But like that the, that like went all Kurt out. Russell with the creature designs. Cool. Oh, Kurt Russell would have been cool. Yeah, I don't know. I I look. I'm For curious me, about my, it. You know what I mean? I just feel like that that he's because that last scene with Jane. I feel like it's the only time we ever really unlock a lot of emotion hmm. as an actor. Whereas that whole circumstance, like he doesn't have to. I think there were when you look around at the time, even if you take some people from Walking Dead, like, I mean, get John Bernathal in there. Make it happen. <laughs> you just want to see him in there. Just, yeah. It doesn't matter what he does. <laughs> yep. It doesn't matter what John does. Um, but yeah, what else you watch? Oh, well, that, that's, uh, oh, that's yeah, that's part of my little Darabont research. How about Lovely. you, Zach? What have you been watching? Um, I watched Somebody I Used to Know, which is on Amazon oh, Prime. Um, what's uh, his name directed it? Dave Franco. Dave Franco. And, and his, wife, his wife, Alison Brie, is the lead. I've been and seeing a lot of promo because I follow on Instagram. Yeah. She ran around a whole way naked on the premiere day. Did you see that? I did not. You, you should look it up. It's on her Instagram. Um, she, it's, it's, you don't see see her naked. It's, yeah. It's, I, it's blurred. But I was excited because <laughs> there, were, well, there were a lot of things I liked about it because I, I like i really a big fan of Alison Brie. Always been a big yep. fan of Alison Brie. You know, pick a, pick a lane. Um, this definitely felt like Dave Dave and Alison's and her their friends make a movie. Sure. Um, yeah. I think PC's in it. The one who voices Princess Caroline. Oh, Amy Sedaris. I think she's only in it. She's like the promote. She literally plays... Like a Princess Carolyn oh, well, caricature. Go. Well, she plays she plays Princess Carolyn in Chef. Like she, it's literally the same character. Yeah, because <laughs> she's playing like Alison Brie is a reality TV show producer, right? And her boss or her like person that helps her make up the shows. I'm pretty sure so. Now, okay. I I'm not as um, familiar with the actor names, but the voice was pretty iconic. Sure, it was pretty hard to oversee. And then on top of that... Well, she's Danny, the Mandalorian as well. Yeah, and, yeah. and Danny Pudi came back from Community. So there's clearly that... There's those ties there. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's really happy to see them share a screen together. The film... Mm, oh, yeah. I'm a huge fan of it. Lukewarm, maybe at best. Um, I was really looking forward to this because I was hoping, like... Oh, Amazon's had a pretty good track record of surprising us with these sleeper comedy hits. I mean, Palm Springs is very good. With Melody yeah, and, and Samberg. That was a big gift. They bought that at Sundance. That was huge. Yeah. So I was excited. I was like, oh, well, Franco's writing it. He's pretty funny. We've got a lot of funny act like actors in here that are pretty mm. good at doing comedy. But I was, I was very disappointed. It ended up being a very serviceable, serviceable to meh sort of 
adult comedy and that was left... it just not that funny or nah not really I mean it, so the, the dynamic was really interesting so obviously Alison Brie goes back to her hometown her teenage sweetheart young adult sweetheart mm-hmm. or whatever is getting married and she's trying to break up the wedding and get back with him oh, so okay. so she's a terrible person <laughs> yeah she is the she's the she's right in the Bojack category of uh, terrible people um, I think yeah, the comedy didn't really hit for me. The story is a bit tropic. Obviously, it almost feels like the way she approaches people, she approaches them almost like they're on that reality TV show. She prompts them and primes them the same way. And mm, I think that there, there's definitely deliberate points in there, but the the comedy itself was not compelling. I think we've, in all seriousness, there, there has been a real drought in finding authentically good comedic actors mm. in this generation that's come through. We've got a lot of really good drama actors coming through. But I was thinking about this the other day, because it's like, you know, I'm not a big Adam Sandler fan, but he is a generational comedian mm. actor. Jim Carrey's the same. But then you go from them into the, you know, like the Vince Vaughns and Owen Wilson, Ben Stiller. Right. And I'm going, well, they're all really solid, strong comedy actors mm. and then we go from them into the Jason Sudeikis's, Jason Bateman Amy Poehler right Chris Pratt like that is that S- the next SNL brand mm. and it's like I really think we've actually had a bit of a dry spell of really authentically good comedic yeah, actors there was a really good like categorization there because the, the, the most recent I, I think of like the Kevin Hart age and that's still like and that's like, like eight nine years ago now yeah it's like I don't it's like, I don't find a lot of the I mean I don't even know if it's so much just the lack of comedic actors I'm sure they're like they're hidden somewhere I'm, I'm sure they're around but it's just straight comedies these days are so few and far in between and rarely ever well thought out of good it's usually just even riffing the, but even the four quad the four quadrant comedies Mm. These were the actors that sort of elevated them, the yeah. you know, and it's like where the Millers was ten years ago, mm. and it's like that's Sudeikis. So it's like okay, well, what what's this next lot? Like, I'm trying to think. Well, Adam Devant, I would put in that same category. So I'm like really reaching. Like yeah. maybe you go into the wrestlers, like the John Cena's. But mm. I, even when I say John Cena, like, um, what is it? Cockblockers. That was five years ago or something like four, five, yeah, it's, four or five years it's ago old now so it's like I never saw it. what's it's really funny but it's, <laughs> i'm like i was sitting here going like what's this generate because we've got these florence pews and saoirse ronans and it's like i watched see how we watched see how they run mm. and I, they're sort of hitting but i feel like that's the writing and not the the com- but the then again it's like you got like like adrian brody it's like he's obviously far more known for his dramatic roles. Yeah, you're, you're thinking of like straight up comedians. I'm talking that in movies. that gently. Yeah, you've yeah. got these dramatic actors that can come over into comedy, but I'm talking the staple comedian actors. Like, I see honestly, I see Rebel Wilson. It's like I affiliate her with comedies, mm-hmm. but it's like Rebel Wilson's peak comedy would have been what eight nine years ago. So it's like I don't know if we've got our gener this generation's comedic actors mm. do they exist i feel like i'm really blanking but, <laughs> but to that point yeah, report back to me because <laughs> i'm open to it i really want this next generation to come through yeah but it's like for example it's like we've now got i guess we've got these multifaceted ones like 
I think Pedro Pascal, we've really, and we've, I mean, everyone's finally, they've really unlocked the potential of this man mm. when you watch Unbearable Weight and then you flip it with Joel in Last yeah, of Us. Yeah. You know, but not, I'm talking about, like I said, these staple, when we almost get surprised you're, you're when they You're talking about pure comedians that go the doing stand up in their late teens that now have movies written just for them to perform the in. The only one I can think of is Pete Davidson in this mm-hmm. generation. That's it. Okay. Like, that's the only one that springs to my mind. And even then, I don't think Pete yeah. Davidson's been in that many comedic roles. I mean, King of no, Staten not, Island. No, not to the same extent the movies you were listing earlier. Yeah. Like, yeah, in Staten Island, that's like a, a, a commie drama sort of thing. Yeah. So, just food for thought. Yeah. My mind wandered. Interesting. Fair yeah. enough. Have you seen yeah. anything else? Nah, that was it. And the film of the week. That's <laughs> why I probably tangent in for so long. No, no, fair enough. It was a good conversation. But it was. It's just interesting to think about. Yeah. Because no. it's, you know, I remember the first time I saw Ben Stiller in something serious or Bateman in something serious or even like Ted Lasso's, like what Sudeikis is doing with that. That's right. really funny, but it's got serious, deep undercurrents. Sure. Oh, that comes back in two weeks. I'm so excited. Yeah, that's very soon, actually, yeah. yeah. Even, like, you figure, like, the animation side, you look at, like, Will Arnett as well, and obviously he does tons of live action, yeah. like a Batman. He does all of that stuff. But it's like, I don't... I kind of think of him, I guess, because of BoJack, I think of him as being that versatile, yeah, but not his, just a pure comedy But man. I would argue Arnett's most successful performances are both voice acting related. It's Lego mm-hmm. Batman and BoJack. Yeah. They're the... There is money roles, too, to be yeah. honest, in, in both ways, so... But then Batman is like, it's not a comedic character, but he plays a comedic version of that character yeah. because it's animated and, and for kids. Yeah, it, you're right. It gets a bit muddy nowadays, yeah. which I think is fine. I, I mean, I like actors being more versatile and being able to do different genres because I think most actors are trying to get yeah. out of being pigeonholed. Yeah, so I think that I think might also be something they're just doing. There's something better about now. watching like the wedding crashes or the four Christmases, and you just yeah. Vince Vaughn's delivery is so funny to me. <laughs> like I just I find him like classic Hallmark comedies. It's it. It's the Hallmark comedy. Sometimes I'm just missing it. Yeah. God forbid. All right. Well, I guess it's time for us to move. Well, career updates actually, or mm. or because we're not going to spend too long on the sags. Um, no, the sags were this morning. Everything everywhere. Did pretty darn well. From it the is film every. It, it's everything everywhere. <laughs> One of those awards. I will say we were saying it before the show, Zeke, but it definitely, especially with the Jamie Lee Curtis win, it looks like the supporting actress race is a little cluttled right now. We really don't know what's going on. Angela yeah. Basket, um, Jamie Lee Curtis, and in particular, I'm rooting for Kerry Gondon. So we'll see how that all goes. But I think best supporting actor race is starting to become a lot more clear. Mm-hmm. The fact that Brendan won the SAG for lead actor, it's really between him and Austin now. And then over... I said it last week on the show. I'm like, Kate Blanchett, it's like, it, she's just going to take it. She's going to slip it right from under Michelle Yeoh's feet. But alas, she won the SAG. So it looks like a complete head-on-head collision course between Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh now, which is fascinating. Which way are you leaning out of those two? I really don't know because I love both their performances. I think it's... I think... I don't know who I actually really want. I, I probably Hollywood five years ago would have gone with Blanchett. Hollywood now. I think Michelle Yeoh. In, if you want to look at it from like, has she earned it from like an, her entire career basis in terms of who's owed it more? Definitely Michelle Yeoh. But in terms of just looking at the two performances on their own, it's like, well, they're both incredibly impressive and versatile. So, I think with Tar though, the one thing Kate Blanchett has is that. She's like the clear best part of that film, 
And, like, the writing's great, the direction's great, everything's great about Tar, but she's easily the best part of yeah. the movie. And I think everything, everywhere has so many, you know, it, it's going to sweep editing, it's probably going to get director, it's got other places to really shine. No, that's, so I think that's that, a very valid point. That potentially is where their thinking's going to go, but um, that, that I mean, it, it's a sag, so it, it's just performances and acting. I think those are the four things that are going to now mm. represent um, the Oscars, especially because All Quiet didn't really have much representation from the performance standpoint. Yeah. None, none of the actors or actresses got nominations anywhere. It's, so it's it's more the other categories where it's like, does that now have a better shot at Best Picture, mm. for example? But anyway, that's what, two weeks away now, Zeke? Yes, food Fast for approaching. But Career updates, though? Yeah, well. Not as far, even faster approaching. I know, scary. So we are doing another round of filming for Skin and Blister this weekend. Mm-hmm. Very exciting, very scary. Well, not as scary. I, I said it to you earlier, Zeke. It, 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 last shoot felt like all hands on deck. The whole cast and crew needed to be there, ready to go. Three very long nights straight. Mm-hmm. And this one feels a bit more... Everyone's on call. But, yes. <laughs> but not quite. we got a little bit of stuff we're doing on Friday, a little bit of stuff we're doing on Saturday. Got a big shoot on Sunday. It's all kind of spread out a bit. But nevertheless, it, this is it. We're going to wrap yeah. the film beautifully. By uh, this time next week. Very it's very exciting. exciting, isn't it? Yeah. feels like we're, uh, you know, it, it doesn't feel like it's been a long time since we did that shoot, but it has been. It's been like six weeks. Yeah, it's, last, uh, I think it's lot. been well over a month now. Yeah, because we wrapped on, what, the 23rd? Wow. The morning, the, uh, the wee hours of the 23rd, I'll say, and mm. it's a little over a month from that now. So yeah, it, it's been a little, I, we were kind of hoping to get it a little bit shorter distance because I think people have not checked out but I think you work on something very intensely but but you know have a great time and then you take a month away from that well, you sort of lose that luster a little bit you definitely lose the momentum sometimes the momentum you exactly could, well you're in danger of losing the momentum mm. I, I think we're, we're still in pretty high spirits I think coming into a long weekend is really good we've yes. got two separate shoot days not back to back there's a lot of so everyone's allowed We're to very watch. much easing into the work we have to do this weekend. Yeah. Very much. I mean, it's literally seven shots across both Friday and Saturday. Yes. And for logistical reasons, it just made the most sense to do it that way. But it also is nice because, well, we've committed to hiring out all the equipment and everything we need for the whole weekend, fin- like financially in terms of the responsibility of having all that gear. We're not going to try and do it all in one night. We've got it for the weekend. So let's spread things out, take our time, and do it all correct. You know, when we wrap this, this will be the first film that we have worked on together since 2018. Wow. Five years. That's crazy. Well, we've done little things like... like We both worked on the same film, but like maybe you were directing and I was like recording sound or... Like yeah. On a, on a smaller capacity, we've both worked on stuff together in 2019. Yes. But nevertheless, that's still a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Just thought, fun facts with Zeke. Other than the podcast, Zeke. Yes, which has been weekly. Ongoing. And ongoing. For many, many years. Yes. (laughs) Yes. If you don't count the podcast. Can always count it. Well, my IMDB counts it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess then it's time for us to move into Film of the Week and our latest director corner. But Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? Because we're talking about Frank Darabont and his uh, masterpiece, question mark? Yeah, probably. The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, probably. Send you here for life. That's exactly what they take. 
I believe in two things. Discipline. Help me! In the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> you can fit right in. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. He had a quiet way about him. A walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside that they can't touch. What are you talking about? Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Damn it, dude, friend, you're putting me behind! Hope can drive a man insane. You better be sick or dead in there, I kid you not! You better get used to that idea. Oh, my holy God. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Too busy living, you get busy dying. Get busy living, or get busy dying. That's damn right. Andy Dufresne, a successful banker, is arrested for the murder of his wife and her lover and is sentenced to life imprisonment at the Shawshank Prison. He becomes the most unconventional prisoner. That's rude. Yes. Killed his wife and her lover. But did he? Supposedly. Yeah. It is alluded to. This film. (laughs) Early on. Yes. Shawshank Redemption. Such an interesting... For me, this film's... Obviously, you know, we've just talked about it. It's equal first for the most... Or the highest... The most acclaimed film of all time on Mm. IMDb, which is more likely to say most liked film or unanimously decided that it's a liked film, right? Like, IMDb is not a critical score or anything like that. Well, it's an out out of ten. Yeah. But, like, you see... I mean, you see things get skewed based on... Especially television shows, you see people like, oh, that episode had a lot of action in it, so I'm going to give it a higher rating than the others, like, even yeah. if it's not like intellectually as interesting. Yeah, there, But I've never met someone that dislikes it. this film. No. Which which always begs the question that it's like, you know, we, and we obviously it's a director's corner. Why didn't, after this film, why wasn't Frank Darabont one of those names that was in the same company as our Scorsese, Spielberg's? Mm. And that's like where I want to start this conversation, Jake. Why does he not share the same, you know, even the film it's tied with, you know, that's a Francis Ford Coppola film. Right. You know, that's Apocalypse Now. That's, 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 that's Godfather. This director is... The, basically, ironically, the godfather of all those directors that I said after the fact. <laughs> and yet, this film that's so unanimously liked, this director is, you know, for a lot of people, a bit of a bit of a, a bit of a head scratcher. It kind of it kind of you know feels I mean? like he's more in line with like your Peter Weirs and Rob Reiner's, yes, who aren't as much of a household name as Steven Spielberg. But when you hear their name, you're like, oh yeah. They're, they're incredible. Direct. They've made incredible things. But specifically to that, I think part of it is just the quantity of the films they've done. Mm. Now, Frank Darabont, 
brilliant director. Yes. I mean, if you made Shawshank and Green Mile back to back, like that's a that's a resume that anyone would be proud to have. Mm-hmm. But when you look at Francis Ford Coppola, he's got several of these esteemed classics, and you and you know you him and Stephen and then George Lucas and like you look at the seventies mm. director Martin Scorsese. I think it's interesting because you don't want to look at it as if they all had the leg up on him in the sense that they had already made several great classic beloved films before Frank Darabont did. But when you look at 1994, we just talked about films like Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction, which I think had more an an immediate resonance with people. And I think this film bombed. I think it was something that kind of people digested more over time. And I I think it was something that once it started rerunning on TV a lot, um, I think, more people recognize it as a cult classic. They started renting it from video stores more. It was kind of the impression I got reading about it, and that yeah, I think it might have actually bombed at the box office initially. I'm curious what the number is you're looking at. Yeah, I mean, budget was 25 million. It grossed 73.3. So wow, okay, it still grossed pretty well. But like you said, that's not, pretty good. It, still, it's actually. a relatively lukewarm grossing. Though. I think that is over a collective period of time. That, too. You're right. That might have been a lot of um, reruns, rescreenings, and whatnot. And all that. So this, I mean, to be honest, you just brought up the fact it being on television, and to be honest, I reckon this is the most like unanimously and this is not any fact or any sort of backing behind this but mm. i feel like most people's first experience with watching this film was it was on like channel seven or channel <laughs> nine and it was like oh, i'll just start watching this film yeah. and then they get to about three yeah they get to the end of the film and they're like what a great film yeah, like it, yeah. Feel, it actually honestly feels like one of the best films for television with its breaks like you know how it yeah. you know how films break in action and they go to a commercial break. Shawshank's really good at chopping up because it's so over a period of time. Yeah, it's like, roughly 20-year time period. Yeah. I especially felt that when we got to the Tommy stuff, I was like, this really does feel like an anthology of stories at this point. Yeah. Like, compared to something like The Green Mile, this film's a lot more focused. It's like 45 minutes shorter than The Green Mile. And narratively, mm. it's a much more focused story. It's specifically about, obviously, these two prisoners yes and and the overall arching theme of of hope and like the human spirit prevailing in these harsh conditions and you know you can look at films like holocaust movies that probably showcase the you know preservation of the human spirit in a more deeper sense but this this is slightly more innocent but may maybe even more resonant even just in the small moments where they're drinking beer and, mm. and trying to find some sort of solace out of collecting rocks and having posters of girls in the cell there's there's all that stuff but in terms of the actual story it's telling it's far more focused it's ultimately yeah. about this man who goes to prison finds solace and a way of living life in prison finding out he's innocent being revoked of the right to to another, you know, a, a second chance, and then ultimately going about giving himself that second chance. Yes, and it's done in a very engaging, fairly tight two hour twenty minute. Like I'm, I was engaged the entire time. Yeah, it definitely sweeps you. Mm. Yeah, and it's, I think it's because there's always something because the, the act of does he do it disappears pretty quickly. It doesn't mm. become a. The question, the driving question, isn't did Andy actually murder his wife and and the lover? It's 
It's almost irrelevant for most of the film. Yeah, it is. And it only ever comes back, yeah, when, when Tommy gets reintroduced. Mm. And it's it's quite interesting because then it becomes, yeah, it just becomes this... How Andy basically acclimatizes and, and serves the microcosm of, of Shawshank prison. Mm. And sort of how he creates those friendships and, and with, with Red and his gang and... Particularly how he develops a, a very deep connection towards Red in terms yep. of sort of talking about the world and perspectives. And and meanwhile, you know, in the back here, it's Andy's basically sort of schmoozing up to the authority to sort of gain a, a sense of identity against mm. himself, which is lost when he arrives at Shawshank. He's despondent. He doesn't talk. He doesn't engage. Yep. You know, he, he barely survives the opening stretch and barely speaks to anyone Mm -hmm. and um it's so interesting it's such an interesting film that hooks you in because of you know and it you know we're talking about at the the top of the show when i'm talking about all of the other suggestions for who plays red and you've realized how reliant you are on morgan freeman's narration of this story because it adds a different dynamic it adds us we're totally just in the subjective discourse of Red. Yeah. We don't really have any real idea of, of Andy's life apart from what Red knows of Andy's life. So when things get revealed, we only get them revealed when other characters... Mm. Reveal, when Red sees it, either. Yeah. Um, or is there to witness it. Now, I think that just adds such a great dynamic, you know? All the times when Red's not in a scene and Andy's, like, talking to the warden... Yeah. You honestly, it it is a secondhand account. You know, it doesn't feel like we're seeing Andy's perspective in that scene. We're seeing what Red thought, like what Red yeah. was told by Andy, what happened in that scene. Which might be a case of just that's how the novel portrayed it, where it's like maybe, and we haven't read it, or the novella, I should say, but perhaps Red was the, you know, the main character in the novella, and we're reading the story yeah. from his perspective. And it perfectly makes sense here, not only because it helps with the, you know, establishing the tone of the film that feels so lived in and almost melancholic in the sense that that's his voiceover. It's, yeah. it's just, he's kind of, this is his life. It's not that he's given up on, on attempting a new life or he's, he's overly excited about getting out of prison. This is just life. Mm. He's been in there for 20 years. He ends up being in there for 40 years. It is his life that is inside these walls. And I love the juxtaposition between that voiceover he gives and then the pitch he does to that panel when he's basically um, asked, do you believe you have been reformed? And he's mm. reciting lines that we think he thinks they want to hear. Yeah. Which is, I am a changed man. I am no longer a threat to society. And it's delivered so differently from any other line he delivers in the film and any other voiceover he delivers in the film. And it's such a great payoff at the end when what he says to the panel Actually aligns works. so much more with the the red that we've learnt and known over the past yes. two hours. Such a rewarding experience there. But to take it back to Andy... It's a good three-act structure there. Because yeah. I think he goes back three times. Yeah, yeah. Your plant, your reminder, and your payoff. There you go. It's beautiful. That's probably how each act begins. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I could totally... Yeah, I'll have to go back and, I guess, check, but that, that sounds correct. And then your final act, not really a big climax, but it is sort of the nice epilogue. I think so. Um, and then especially when he's out of the prison. I don't want to jump around too much, but I love when he's out of the prison. Walter, that reflects probably 
arguably the greatest scene in the film. Not that we're doing highlight scenes, but the whole Brooks, um, you know, leaving prison. In, yeah, he's been institutionalized. He doesn't understand how to function in society anymore. Mm. I love some of the lines he has. He talks about, I saw an automobile once, now they're everywhere. The world got itself in a big damn hurry, which is so... Me and Kirsty had that exact same conversation two days ago. Still true now. Not those words, but just like everything feels so much louder than it was when we were kids. Yes. And and life feels louder than it was 100 years ago based on the films and texts I'm, that I'm we've seen. I'm glad you and Kirsty have celebrated your 25th anniversary. <laughs> of life? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but exactly. It's like... No, it is It's very a very bad. relatable thing for a character that's talking about his experiences in what, the 50s, 60s? Yeah. And this idea that he's been locked away so long that he just has no idea how to function. And he, he has no other alternative. He's like, I see no way to live through this life. Yeah. It's so well done and so bold for the film to just take this massive detour. We talk about this being Red's story and specifically his story about what he thought of Andy Dufresne. Mm. But, and obviously, it's all the context of it is that they're reading a card, or yeah. basically a suicide note that he sent to them. So that that is the justification for why we, the audience, see this. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the film's language, it's such a detour from what everything else yeah. in the film is doing. And it's so bold and it's so brilliant. And it's sad. It's sad. This is a person who's in jail for probably murdering people. And much like The Green Mile, it really makes you empathize with these people that are here for having done horrible things, mm. but have gone on these journeys. Yeah, absolutely. Of redemption. Of Shawshank redemption. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, it is one of those things that gets very real, and obviously, you know, we, we see that moment when Red's... When he gets out, mm. not to jump too far and back and forth, but sure. it has that parallels with, with, with Brooks, and, and we fear for the same sort of fate. Yeah. But what's really interesting is, is sort of the... How society works within the prison and that dynamic that we see, mm. and sort of the you know the the big thing that we're we're trying to discover is that reflective nature of of how society sort of views criminals versus views those those lawmakers, yeah. and how obviously over the time over the time we spend, we start to see that perhaps the people that are in the prison are the ones that shouldn't be in the prison, and those who those lawmakers aren't as, as mm. fair and, and righteous as they proclaim. Well, Andy makes the joke of, I had to be sent to prison to become a criminal because he was innocent until the warden forced him to cook books. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It's an interesting... First off, like compared to, to Green Mile, the relationship uh, between the guards and the, the inmates, it's, it's so much more um, binary. Mm. It's so much more strict in that the guards are horrible authoritative figures to these inmates and it's like on our first night in Shawshank we see someone die yeah not because of what the inmates did they teased him and ruffled him and and that's a great you're right look into the the microcosm world that is Shawshank but it's the guards that ultimately kill him yeah and I and to extend it from that to what they do with the cooking the books and just the horrible treatment it's it's interesting to see you know, between these two groups of characters, who are the ones that we relate to more that have we have the more result, uh, remorse for? Yeah, yeah. and it's I mean, full credit to Clancy Brown and Bob Gunton who play Captain Hadley and, and Warden Norton. Mm. I think that their performances, um, 
are just really good, especially, I mean, Gunton's Warden is very menacing, um, despite being this middle-aged man with these small little spectacles. <laughs> it doesn't seem like, um, at first, they're very intimidating. It just feels like someone who is in a position of power. But then yeah. we, we see how they how they act when, obviously, Tommy comes in. Yeah. They feel like they might lose their resource of, of you know, Tim Robbins' uh, Andy, and, and they remove that problem. So then, very violently and and very shockingly, violent. yeah, yeah, and then that brilliant had, birds like the birds eye view shot of like the shadow extinct, just brilliant stuff, yeah, yeah and from it, Mr. Roger Deakins, of course, yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> I mean, do we expect anything less? I mean, there's some of the most iconic shots in cinema history here, and, and a lot of them are top down as well. Looking at him as he he's climbed out of the drain and embracing the rain, yeah. The top, yeah, there is. There's a lot of those sort of perspective shots. I think once again, it's like Shawshank. You know, this is one of those films where we're talking about these bottle films, and clearly, you know, even in Green Mile, the the Institute has its own character mm-hmm. and element, and I think it gets lost a little bit more in Green Mile than it does here. Obviously, it's called Shawshank Redemption. It's in sort of the title, and I, yeah. I think in Green Mile, it's it's obviously the stretch that is referred to as as that and yeah exactly it's like sort of the corridor yeah almost. and yeah and there are rooms in green mile that do take on the character obviously the execution chamber is is used multiple times mm-hmm. and is definitely given that character but there's different stories happening in that and obviously we leave the the prison um realm a few times yeah. um in, the, in that where whereas in this shawshank has to feel like a, an like a like its own sort of little society, its own yeah. organism, because, you know, you've got the dynamics of a prison. And I don't think there's a prison movie that explores those dynamics as well as, as Shawshank does. Mm. Um, well, it's kind of the unveiling of, of how corrupt those guards and the warden is, because from Andy's perspective, there's actually a little bit of a bond going on there where, like, the guards appreciate his know-how as, like, a, as a banker, and then when he's talking to the warden about Bible verses, it's like he gives him, he's like, oh, well, you know what? It doesn't hurt. You can keep the poster in here and these like figures in the corner. It feels like there's a little bit of a meeting in the middle relationship mm-hmm. going on, sure. but it's just there to just completely 180 you over the head with, oh, no, no, no. They're corrupt, horrible people. And it's like, they will literally kill people to keep him in prison. Yes. <laughs> because you're right. He's just a pawn as part of a wider scheme. And yeah, it's it's fascinating because not only is that the main difference in the Green Mile is like the relationship the guards and the inmates have. They're not friends at all in this film. But you're right, it's the communal experience. The Green Mile has a couple of characters. Mm. A few guards, a few inmates, and a lot of them sort of remove themselves in the story throughout. This is very much more of an ensemble piece. This is very much about the wider community yeah. of the prison. And so like yeah. you have this gang here and you know, this one thereafter, um Andy and that that's sort of a horrible little side story that happens earlier in the film. But then, um, the the more characters develop as like they're building the library, for example, and yeah, it's a much more communal film from that standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really interesting. Obviously, when Andy's exposed to the sisters early on, and, mm, the sisters that was it. Um, and obviously that that sort of arc that pretty much finishes off the the first act I reckon in Shawshank mm. when that comes to its conclusion, Red sort of takes Andy in with the group because they have the beers. The beers, I mean, the beers on the roof really feel like that that perfect sort of end of Act One moving into or Part mm. One. It's not even sure of its traditional three act structure there, but 
Um, it definitely feels like that's the moment when he's sort of accepted life in the prison and he's going to make it the most of, like, bringing the books into the library and, and you know, sort of helping Brooks out and that. Yeah. And then we get introduced to Brooks in that sort of um, early, late first act, early second act and move into that. And I think it's really interesting because, like I said, the, the big takeaways from this film is its cinematography, its use of voiceover with Red driving the narrative and never straying what's interesting is he does have that lack of he is reading like he's like he's talking like he's reading from a storybook mm. there's no emotion in his voice not in the sense of um he never frays or freaks out or we never see hyper emotions no he just it's says, quite a flat line it's observational lived in observational voiceover um which i think is is totally in character this is someone who has given up on any sense of hope for a life outside these walls and anything other than the life that he lives in the prison. Yeah. So it makes perfect sense that this is his observational voiceover. His tone is not flatline. I mean, it's it's Morgan Freeman. Yes. He delivers it with such nuance and such grace. But you're right. It feels like he's reading a storybook, but without the exaggerations you would give to a five-year-old. Yes. Where you're you're sort of... Uh, making characters appear more evil by like your infl- inflection of their voice or the way you describe certain people it's all very deadpan but but in a really interesting way yeah absolutely to go back to this idea of community and let, let's talk about some of the the um i guess the the way they build interactions the way they build the community i'm talking about the cigarettes being used as currency Mm-hmm. This idea of, you know, there are characters who are like smugglers who can get things. There's an item exchanging. And when I watch this, it kind of reminds me, it feels authentic in the same way that The Godfather feels authentic. Where it feels like I'm watching something that is so true to life. And it's not an exaggeration. Everything feels so grounded and so realistic. But I say that as someone who doesn't know much about real prison systems. He's never been to prison. <laughs> Nice. And when I see things like that, you know, this idea of the, the cigarettes as the currency and whatnot, I'm like, I only feel like this is authentic because this is what movies in the past have shown me. And this is something that I read, is that the original novella was apparently just a collection of memories Stephen King had from watching prison films as a child. So there was no real, from a writing standpoint, research on the prison system. Well, this is just a collection of things that we've seen in older media. That has been mm. reinforced so much in film now that we kind of just find this as authentic. Yes. And it's like, I have no real life reasoning or deducting to believe that there is a currency of cigarettes in all the American prisons out there. Well, actually, this is um, this isn't American, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, oh, it's American? Yeah, it is America. Oh, yeah, of course. Sure thing, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But that being said, it's like, I have no real life basis to ground all of these ideas and how the society and the prison works. Yeah. It's all just like reflection from reflection of reflection of past movies and texts. But as it's I said, it is that reflection of, or even in literature, the microcosm construct that we, you know, we, we study even in high school and, but it's in the same dynamic here. There's the commerce aspect of it mm. because commerce creates a hierarchy of need and, and want. And that's what we use as society. It's, it, it's been simplified in a prison and that's where that institutionalization mindset comes in that, that Brooks struggles with that adaptation because the world doesn't make sense to him because mm. he comes from a world where 
if you wanted something, you go see one individual yeah. to sort you out. And that if you one... want to go to the toilet, you don't have to ask. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because that that sort of you never really think about that um, that aspect. And obviously, you know, reds red sort of has the same sort of thing. And if you would argue that the ult- yeah the ultimate reward is that Andy's on the other side and Andy never really let go of his personality or mm. at least he's regained his personality to a point where he never lost that sense of identity from outside the walls. Yeah. I mean, he's That's still... That's most rem- evident is that when he escapes, within hours, he's at banks, you know, withdrawing money and, and, and talking about... As if, like, but, he hasn't missed a beat. But in to its credit, and, the, and this is what the sort of they're outlining with it is the fact it's because he never did leave his job Mm. yeah because he's very true because ironically the warden and the whole police staff are facilitating this man's employment this man has the same role in society he's just confined to walls yeah um obviously he like he says he's doing Mm. the wrong thing but he's still a banker he's just doing the yeah the wrong thing so he was able to sort of know sort of plan out methodically how he would escape and do it successfully and um it's a really good point because not only is he bringing you know aspects of his personal life into the prison with the banking or not but he is sharing that with everyone it's not just a library as well it was playing the the music on the speaker for everyone and and people couldn't quite understand that he was talking about holding on to that memory and that sound of the music when he was in the confinement for the next two weeks. Mm -hmm. But this is him sharing his knowledge and his appreciation of art to the people who've been in prison for God knows how many years now who who have just kind of lost that connection um, to the things that they don't have in a prison anymore. And that's why it is so special that he's bringing all of these, these experiences of normalcy and whether it is the library or it's, you know, drinking on a rooftop just these little moments where they can feel like free men again. Yeah. And that's why I kind of equate it to a Western in that sense, where he's able to come into this strange town and, and change it for the better one way or another. Yeah. I wonder, and I made the same assertion with Barry Egan in um, Punch Drunk Love. Do you think Andy is autistic? Because of his reserved nature reserved um, physical demeanor where he kind of has this sort of reserved walk. It's like Red said, he doesn't really walk like anyone else in the prison. Mm-hmm. Um, he's great with numbers, evidently. <laughs> I'm going to put this next to Punch Drunk Love as the unofficial autism representation <laughs> in film. <laughs> it's probably there to an extent. Yeah, There's a, His demeanor is definitely reserved. He's observational. He's quirky. He doesn't he's... talk for a month. Yeah. <laughs> There probably is there. There would be a fair argument that yeah. there is an there is an ASD um, in in this, and I think that you know that's a that's an interesting perspective on it because um, there's like I said, there is enough rationale to justify. What an interesting sort of point to bring up. Yeah, no, it's, it's something I noticed while watching. I was like, I, f- I feel like he has autism, which is the exact same feeling I had about Punch Drunk Love, just watching that. Which is great because it's it's obviously subtle enough the film doesn't make a point of mm-hmm. you know it, it, the characters are observing that Andy's a little different a little quirky yeah. in some way has nothing to do with that it's more just like his behavior in this you're right in this established society that is the Shawshank prison 
and the fact that he never, after 19 years, he never really relents or yields. And he's able to... You're right. He brought his life into the prison. Yeah. And everyone saw it and was surprised so, and baffled by it. There's an obvious connection for Darabont with former forms of literature, whether that mm. be through Stephen King, which is like his chief supplier, basically. <laughs> hook, hook him up. Hook um, him up directly into the wall. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, but not just that. Obviously, we see Darabont's transition into using comic books. You know, his first two seasons on Walking Dead mm. are no sheer coincidence to pick up a comic book or graphic... Is it graphic novel? I think it's a graphic novel. But a graphic yeah, novel a graphic, and whatever, yeah. turn that into... <laughs> Well, as most people would happily say, the the best two seasons of that show. <laughs> um, but it's, it is interesting to think about because clearly this is a director that likes working off already existing source material. Like, not a lot of writing, directing coming from Darabont. Sure, He's on a, a lot of original adapt- stories, on, you mean. Yeah, on original stories, yeah. yeah. Which is interesting to think about. Um he did do a film called The Majestic in 2001 that is about blacklisted Hollywood writers. Very Trumbo-esque. I do not know if this is based on anything, but it, how it was written by Michael uh, Sloane. So he didn't write it himself necessarily. Yeah. Just it's just interesting to, to think about. Because um, it, it seems to be a, at least a, a pattern enough to make that sort of deduction. And... Um, also, but always relying on a form of literature and being very true to that literature too. I know mm. that his Walking Dead seasons were much more closely affiliated with the... Sort okay, of the, like quite faithful. Yeah, I believe they were definitely more faithful. They definitely took the time where... Um, mm. I know the, the missed ending was his original creation. That was the ending was not the one that Steven Spielberg wrote. Steven King. I keep saying Steven Spielberg, damn it, Zeke. (laughs) It's not good. But, you know, the ending in this is just fantastic. It's one of the best reveals. And that's, I was going to say... Such a beautiful ending. The last girl on the wall, Raquel Welch, she just passed away in the last week. She did. I was going to say, R.O.P. Raquel Welch. So, the last of the three girls on the... Only a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, literally, I think last week. Yeah. Two weeks ago. 15th of February, two weeks ago. I think I found out because um, Edgar Wright, he actually posted a bit of a thing about her on, on his Instagram and the very first image that came up was the exact image that was pinned up on the wall in this film. Obviously a very famous film. It's the one that gets it's the rock ripped. through it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an absolutely brilliant shot. I love the juxtaposition. We're going back to Roger Deakins very quickly. We talked about how famous his top-down shots are and this is we looking at him in the rain. There's some great low-angle shots that really depict the guards and like their power and that's mm. the shot when they use it a few times but i'm thinking of specifically the instance where we see i think he's he's credited as just fat ass i mean that's his name in the credits mm. <laughs> but we see him you know getting beaten and now dead on the floor as all the guards run away and i love that behind it you can see all the you know the the rising staircases it just feels very bureaucratic and, mm. and like caged in which of course it would be it's a prison um, but the other shots i love speaking of the tunnel is that's not the only time they do a POV shot from inside an object. Every time they put something in the safe in the warden's office, that's a POV shot coming from inside the safe. Mm. And I don't think that's a coincidence that those two angles look very similar. Yeah, well done, Roger so Deakins. Clever. So clever. <laughs> it's almost like he's a very talented cinematographer. 
and should have got his Oscar 15 years earlier than he bloody did. Yeah. Uh, Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I'll quickly mention the score. Obviously, it's a very famous score. But what I love, and I picked this up at the end, one of the presents that Red is given, I think, on his 30-year anniversary of being arrested or locked away in the Shawshank, is he gets a har- he's given a harmonica. Yes. And I love that you can hear the harmonica just sneak into the score as he's walking along the uh, the wall of rocks after he's being freed from the prison and leading up to the tree. I thought that was a very subtle touch that they put in there, and I'm glad they caught that. It's a that. great last shot, too. Oh, with them on the beach together? Yeah, and it just pulls away over yeah. the credits. Oh, it's it's gorgeous. It's so it's just so feel-good, because when you see them reunite... Yeah. Like, I, it, it's been... Oh my gosh, would it have been 11 years? No. No, Red's close to being out by the time Andy breaks out. Well, they Andy was in prison for 19 years. Red which had already means been Red was that was when he was 30. I, I think, think it's only a couple of years. Let me check. Cuz it would have been when he was 40. It would have been the 40th year in prison that he was released. I think they've been separated for 10 years, Zeke. Where That's insane red if that's the case that is a that is a crazy reunion they have on the beach <laughs> he's uh he'd spent 19 years tunneling through the wall of his cell uh with posters of Rita Hayward and Raquel Welch covering the whole the oh, following no, year right. red, the following year you're right no 19 off 20 you're right literally one year okay but to be fair, when you're watching the film, you're right. It doesn't feel like a long time has passed. Yeah, but Andy is supposed to spend life in prison. Like he doesn't get yeah. out a year early. Like no, no, exactly. I mean, I mean, Red only leaves a year after Andy. Yeah, it's only a year. Yeah, which to be fair, the film feels that way. I, I just Zin Zin mis- Hart, Zin. How does he say it? Zin Hartnego. <laughs> don't don't ask me to pronounce it, but yeah. There's literally a screenrant.com Shawshank Redemption line uh, timeline. What year is it set in? Oh, that's clever. I should look at that. I know it's like what the 40s to the 60s generally. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think when you see them reunite on the beach, even though they've been together for 19 of the past 20 years, it's it kind of reaffirms that relationship that they built over those years and the, and the one you've had with them watching the screen. And it's oh my god, it's it's so beautiful that friendship, and you're just happy that they reunite. They're both free men, yeah. and it's like they can do whatever. Is they it want a romance film? Pretty much. I mean, it's a sexless romance film. Yeah, but it could be. But this is the big thing about the romance genre: does not have to be like a romantic relationship. It has to. It can still. No, it's, well. Yeah, it's about they. Def, they definitely love each other. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a sexual absolutely relationship. Absolutely solidified. It yeah. can easily be just a platonic relationship. Just two bros in I mean, prison together. As great as the the themes are about hope and and preservation, finding you know something to live for, you know, get busy living or get busy dying. It's mm. a perfect quote. For it. As great as all those themes are, I don't know if the film necessarily works without that core relationship. So is Shawshank Redemption a romance film? I think it's definitely a, a love story. It's definitely a love story, though. I mean, what's the difference between this and when Harry met Sally at the end? Yeah, they both exactly. meet right at the end, and they go, <laughs> when you want to spend the rest of my life with somebody, you just want your start your life to start. Yep, that's exactly it. And literally, Red is only staying alive because he wants to be with Andy. That is the only difference between him and Brooks. Yep. Is he has someone 
to find to yeah, go after. Yeah, and that someone is Andy. So, yeah. boom. That's, that's, <laughs> we did that. Boom. We, we made the call. Shawshank Redemption is a romance I'm sure, film. <laughs> I'm sure that's been Absolutely not. This is the not. first time exclusive. in cinema history. Exclusive. This film came out <laughs> twenty, nearly 20, what, 25 years ago. 27 oh, years ago, goodness. 20-something years ago. Th- nearly 30 years ago, actually. Yeah, we're coming up from 30 now. My lord. 29 years ago. But we're oh, going to be the ones to say this was a romance <laughs> film the whole time. Exclusively on this show. Yeah. That's all there Jake, is to be said. what was your highlight scene? God, there's a few. I, I already bragged about the Brooks montage scene. It's actually very reminiscent of the scene in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button when they're recounting all of the things that had to happen that led to the bus accident or the, or the character being hit by a bus. It's very similar to that um, in terms of it being sort of a stylistic detour from everything else. Um, the tunnel reveal is pretty amazing. It's iconic. Even with just like the musical sting that comes in once you're inside that. Because like, as an audience, we had no clue that was happening. No clue that the entire period of 19 years he was not just planning to escape, was actively escaping. <laughs> yeah. Was in the process of doing it that entire time. It is time. a pretty... There's... And only on rewatches are there, like, maybe one or two shots where it's, like, alluding to something's happening in the cell. Okay. Because I've got... I mean, back- obviously, the posters just being there are, like, it, bits of foreshadowing, of course. Yeah. Do we see any point when he's, like, undoing the socks No, there's something to do with... It's only in the first bit. It's something... I think it's Andy touches the wall and realises what the wall's made of. Or it's something to do with that. Oh, I know he's, like, carving the A for Andy into the wall. That's obviously the starting That's it. I, yeah, well, and it break. Obviously, it cuts away before it breaks. Sure. But I'm trying to remember. There is, like, one scene that alludes to it, roughly. It's something to do with a chess piece, I'm pretty sure. Ah, oh, quite possibly. I think he's playing with a chess piece and he might be looking at the wall. Might be making a connection in terms of the material and yeah. how long it would take to break through it. Because you got to remember as well, you look at something like Prison Break, Michael Schofield, he's sent into prison with the skill set it takes to escape prison, which is that he's an architect and he helped design the actual prison. Andy as a banker, sure, it, those skills are used and um, exploited by a lot of the, the guards yeah. and the warden in the prison. And, and it, at first, it seems like a skill he can use to get... to get um, What's it called? To, like, survive. Yeah, to, to make survive life, prison. life accommodating yeah. to him. Yeah. When he explains to the guard how to, um, you know, keep all his money tax-free, or his, uh, his inheritance, so to speak. But that skill has absolutely nothing to do with the brute force and patience it takes to dig a tunnel into the wall. And that's just something that, that he did through sheer yeah. it's like red says you know you will do anything to occupy occupy yourself in prison and that doesn't come from a skill that that character has that's just sheer will and mm. i think that's a really cool really cool implementation zeke what's your highlight scene oh honestly i really have always loved the rooftop sequence the it's a great scene i think it's the scene but it's the the lot the the red send-off line and i can remember how many times i've seen this on the tv and that always cuts to commercial when it, he says even for a short while <laughs> and it's like cuts to commercial but it's something about that scene the way it plays out the way he you know he goes up to hadley 
Hadley almost throws him over the like over the uh, throws yeah, him off blood, the, you could have died. Yeah, then and there, and it's that sense <laughs> though. But, it's, but this was what it was like for those people of Shawshank, like you said, like and even from the first night when when one of the new inmates is killed just out of pr- sheer brutality. But yeah. the fact that what Andy was doing, he was taking a, a risk, and the risk, you know, could have led to his demise because, you know, there's nothing stopping them throwing him off the roof, like except his intelligence, but that risk there and that fact that there was always that sense of danger, even like you said, mm. like when he's playing the music in the courtyard and the, you know, it's playing over the courtyard and the doors are slamming, the warden slamming at the doors, yep. always that sense of impending doom and danger. Mm. And, you know, it, it, it's boiling and boiling, obviously, and, until Tommy dies and, the, and it gets murdered. And I think it's just really interesting to me because yeah. it, it, the way it all plays out and this this all always this sense of danger it never feels like Andy is ever completely and utterly safe or any of the inmates are safe for that matter and I mean because he's the only one especially in that scene on the rooftop he's the only one bold and dumb enough to approach the guard yeah. and everyone's saying what are you doing get, like don't even look that way like get back to you know to the work the hustle but as he's the one that's willing to risk his life in order to, for the, the small reward of a couple of drinks on the rooftop or any of the normalcy that he's able to obtain in that prison for the other guards. Mm. He's a very special character. Yeah, no worries. Shawshank Redemption is currently out on Stan. Yes. Also, Binge and Paramount Plus, if you have any of those. The works, speaking I of... I think sh- I've got it on 4K as well down there. There you go. Speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Uh, be prepared to leave the house, everybody, because there's a lot coming to cinemas. But first, Netflix, the golden chock top winner, Baby Teeth. Go watch it. Yeah. Fantastic Aussie Don't waste film. your time. Don't waste your time. Speaking of Aussie films, got films like Rams, Penguin Bloom, The Dry, all coming to Stan this week. Jay, I could have swore they were already on Stan, but mm-hmm. maybe they're left and they're coming back. I don't really know what's going on there. Also, Promising Young Woman. Don't yes. miss out on Promising Young Woman. The Mandalorian Season 3 premiere comes to Disney Plus this week. Zeke, where are you at with the... Because I know the book of Boba Fett ties into the show uh, as well. I watched all Boba Fett. Okay. Um, I'm all good to go for Mando. I haven't watched Andor at all. I don't think that's tied to it. But is it's it? not. No. So I've I've got this stuff all ready to go. Okay. I don't know. I'm just like I'm not particularly excited for it. I binged both seasons a couple of years ago, and like that was it. Wow, I thought it was good. It. <laughs> um, but yeah, it wasn't like I don't know. I'm I'm in the same boat with Star Wars that I'm in with. Um, Marvel probably not obviously always going to be more high on Star Wars but sure yeah my, I think my uh, the ship is sailing on these big big franchises I think I don't we think it's d- going to happen we've just been oversaturated with mediocre to disappointing products yeah and we can make an argument every now and then there's something we really attach ourselves to but yeah. and particularly with Star Wars and and, um, and Marvel there's just so few outliers in an otherwise dull and repetitive yeah. cycle of content. Absolutely. And you know how much I hate that word content, Zeke? Yes. I don't use it lightly. <laughs> no. But it, it does feel like that. Yeah. And I think I'm so desperate for some new sci-fi entity to come along and sort mm. of take the mantle or at least occupy the time a little bit more and something unique, something new and... 
I mean, like, I know Dune is June. I was just going to say Dune, That's yeah. coming out this year, isn't it? Later this year? Yeah, it would be the end of this Slated year. Slated for this year, so... But that's, that's not ex- going to get franchised. Yeah. That's the thing. And I'm, but we got to savour it. we got to savour those things when we get them. I get it. I, but even Dune, it's like, obviously, it's a remake of a of, of an 80s thing that, let's be real, I haven't been... I think it isn't Starship Troopers. They've got a new film oh, or something. They? Yeah, something, maybe. But I don't know. I just we got Bill and Ted that returned a couple years ago. something new. Mm, yeah. You know. I saw John Wick 4's trailer. That made me excited. Yeah, yeah. fun. It's funny you mentioned John Wick because they're actually going to play all three films in a marathon at Hoyt's this Friday the 3rd. That was the best segue without trying. It would have been if not for Alex Garland's Men is also coming to Prime. Rough. But that's it. That's it for streaming. Also coming to cinemas is where you have the third Creed movie which sees the titular character thriving in both his career and family life until Jonathan Majors' Damien, a boxing prodigy and childhood friend of Creed's, is released from prison and eager to prove he deserves a shot in the ring. You love these films, don't you? I did enjoy Creed too. yeah. Mm. I really enjoyed Creed. This one hasn't got Sylvester Stallone in it, though, which I no, think's a big... No, didn't, he didn't come up in the casting. Yeah, because there was a big hoopla about it. He wasn't very happy with it. but oh. And I didn't really understand it because it's like... You sort of need the Stallone. He's the mentor character in these. Yeah, films. yeah. And unless you're going to, you know, ruin like take him out. It's weird to remove him from the the franchise. But um, this is weird. I've already got like they. I don't know when they were planning to release this film, but I went to Luna once and they had the Creed three poster already in the free poster box. Oh, so okay. I've already got the poster for this, oh. and I had the poster for this in <laughs> December. Which normally what happens is they obviously let these posters go after the film's been in screen. Well, it's once they've done using the poster. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I've so we've got one at school. You might <laughs> you might get a knock on the door from the good folks at Luna, <laughs> wanting their poster back. Yeah. Which was weird. <laughs> it was so weird. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I know Jonathan Majors Kang's getting a lot of. Yeah, Black too, he's getting and, a lot of stuff out at the same time. Um, Good job, mate. Well yeah, done. people aren't too happy with his Kang, and I mean, I, I really no, well, liked. I, I liked Majors. That's pretty much the only thing people do like about that movie is him. Really? That's all. That's people like. Oh, he's great in it, but oh. the rest of it's schlock. Oh, that's good then, because Last Black Man in San Francisco was a really good film. Yeah. And I really liked him in that. So, um, very good. Yeah, he seems pretty funny. Seems, yeah, seems like I, a funny guy. I should try and watch all the. How many? How many of the Rockies do I need to watch to to get into Creed? Uh, I've watched the original. I've only watched the original Rocky oh, and the well, Creed films. There you go. We're sorted. I've heard that there's another one that's really good, but I haven't watched any of the other. Sure. Ones. Yeah. Um, but Creed is like okay. Well, Rock, Rocky's your mentor, and let's go. That maybe kind of thing might be the time to do it. I mean, I have watched all the Karate Kids now. I need yeah. some more cheesy '80s sports movies, <laughs> particularly fight scenes. So good. We need more of them. Also, coming to cinemas, we have Empire of Light, which is Sam Mendes' latest film starring Olivia Coleman and Michael Ward as employees in an 80s cinema on the south coast of England. Now, I feel like I've definitely read this logline on the show before. I think you have. It's definitely going wide this week. I don't know if it previewed in December once. And Maybe I read that was it. it. I, there must have been it, but it goes wide this week, so I'm excited for it. I know it didn't review very well. It obviously made zero noise in the awards season this yes. year, but. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed Revolutionary Road the other week when I saw it. So, you know, obviously I am I quite like 1917, despite some people's opinions. So <laughs> Throwing shade across the table. Ah, oh, yeah, no. No, I really like... You know what? I was thinking in 1917, particularly in the scene in Shawshank when 
before the famous shot of him embracing the rain, but him as he's like trudging through the water and there's the lightning in the background. Yeah. And it's like the way the lightning looks in as great as the scene is, it's very clearly like a lightning effect in the background. Yeah. That you know, in in specific shots, you're going to see the lightning affect him. The light's going to cast a shadow on him. But in those wider shots where he's trudging through the water, it's not really having an effect on him. Compare that to the scene in 1917 where they're doing like the muscle flashes and there's like aerial bombs exploding yeah. and how that affects like the entire set. That's just a budget thing. I get it. Yeah. But I was like, damn, he's a great, he's a great cinematographer. <laughs> that Roger Deakins. Yeah. Uh, but I am excited for Empire of Light. I'll try and catch it soon. Now, I already mentioned the John Wick trilogy marathon at Hoyts. That same night, they're doing a preview screening of Pearl at Luna, which, holy crap, Pearl's actually coming out <laughs> in Australia. It's been like six months since this movie came out. All there the A24 go. groups are going crazy. you got to watch Pearl. <laughs> I finally can. While you're at Luna this weekend, you can catch any of the 2023 Oscar-nominated short compilations. So they're doing the big screen screenings for the live action and animation shorts. Not the docos, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there might be a good chance to watch those before the um, the show in a couple of weeks. You also have a director Q&A screening this Sunday, the 5th at Luna, for The Grey Line, a film that covers the journey of a young Aboriginal girl taken away from her family during the years of the Stolen Generation and at 14 years old, go on a journey of self-discovery. Sounds intense. does sound very intense. But that's great. And you can, of course, attend the Q&A screening there on the 5th. And finally... I usually would leave this for next week. Um, This is the 6th, so it's next Monday. But, of course, by the time we record next Monday, people aren't going to have the heads up. Yes. So I want to give them the heads up now. Next Monday at Luna, you can watch a preview screening of Two Leslie. So if you want to get into the whole Oscar drama about about uh, Riseborough getting in for Best Actress, there you go. There's your chance. And I really do want to watch this film because Michael Morris, he's a great director. Directed many great Better Call Saul episodes. There you go. So I want to see his feature feature effort. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show, Jake. <laughs> no, we're not. But we are moving into a film that is getting a little bit of Oscar buzz. Yes, exactly. But what are we watching? Next week in the show, Zeke, we're watching R, R, R. Scott Gorover, Mahadilabad, Uchinapuru, Ochinapelan, this coach. Mir, this coach in the Gondla Pelan and పులిని పట్టుకోవాలంటే వేటగాడు కావాలి ఆ పని చేయగలిగేది a fictional history of two legendary revolutionaries journey away from home before they begin fighting for their country in the 1920s. So, yeah. This film's been out for a while now. Like you said, it's getting a little mm. Oscar buzz. Yeah. Particularly for Best Original Song. I've seen the music video for Natu Natu a thousand times. And I don't know if it kind of spoils the movie a little bit for me, but it's a great song. It's a great music video. Mm. But the film itself, 
People have been praising for the last 12 months. It's got 4.2 on Letterboxd. It does. It just it sounds to me like one of those, this film does everything. Kind of like a, another version of everything, everywhere, all at once. Maybe less in your face, but just more, you know. Just epic. More epic. Exactly. Yeah. It's a very high budget Hindi film. Mm. So first time we've ever done a Hindi film on the show. I think so. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. After 216 weeks. Let's do yeah. it. I mean, we did um, obviously Swallows of Kabul, but that was uh, Afghani. That's true. So, slightly different. Middle Eastern. We're moving mm. into India. This is Indian, isn't it? Triple I one? believe so. I haven't two. seen it yet. I've been finding every excuse under the sun to see it. Me, other than just me being lazy. Yeah, India. Beautiful. There you go. Very excited to jump into this. First, we should do one of those scratch maps for every like country yeah, we've done. Put yeah. it up in here, and I've got I've got one, so we should put it up somewhere and there do you go. like a scratch match, a cinema sideshow scratch match. Oh, very good. I like it. But until then, thank you for joining us for the cinema sideshow podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with R R R.